Well, today we are embarking on a new series of sermons on the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. We'll be starting in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, where we read from just a few moments ago. And the focus is going to be on those core Christian doctrines that virtually all Christians have believed at all times and in all places. And Lord willing, over the next 10 weeks or so, we are going to focus our attention on what the Scripture says about God the Father and Christ the Son and the Holy Spirit. What the Scripture says about forgiveness. What the Scripture says about resurrection and the church and the hope that we have of eternal life. The Scripture calls us over and over and over again to be unified, to be one. We see that in Jesus' prayer in John 17 as he was about to go to the cross. We see that in Paul's writings in the book of Romans and in Philippians and in Ephesians. All over the place, over and over again, the Scripture says we are to be united. We are to be one. What is it that makes us one? What is it that is the, the root and foundation of our unity. Well, one of the core things that unites us is what we believe. Those core doctrines that we all share, that we all believe as Christians. Now, it's always a good time to heed that call for unity. But I think it's especially appropriate just now for us to focus on and emphasize those things that unite Christians. And, and for a few reasons. First of all, you may have noticed that we live in a time of extreme division and divisiveness and animosity and anger. And we don't want that to creep into the church and affect the life and heart of the church. And so one of the ways to avoid that is to uh, remind ourselves of why we are together, why we are united, why we are one body. Another reason is that in times of trouble, it's always wise to go back to the basics. If you start having difficulty in your marriage, you can go back to thinking about why you married your spouse in the first place. In sports, if your team is having difficulty, your, your coach is going to take you back to the fundamentals, back to the basics of the game. Well, again, we live in times of trouble. And so it is good for us to go back to those fundamentals of the faith, those essential doctrines that are at the heart of who we are as Christians. Another reason I think this is important is because it is too easy for us to become experts in the things that are peripheral while being novices about the things that are essential. Sometimes we major on the minors instead of majoring on the majors. Right? We want to major on the majors. We want to focus our primary attention on the things that the scriptures say are primary. Right? Another reason is that those who know about Christians and Christianity, mainly through what they hear on the news or see in TV preachers have serious misunderstandings and misconceptions about what Christianity is and what Christians believe. We can't do a whole lot about that, but we can do one thing. We can be ready 
to explain what it is that all Christians believe, what it, is, what it means to be a Christian, so that if we have a chance to talk to somebody in that position, maybe somebody at work, never been to church, never really encountered Christianity, just sort of always heard about it, saw it from a distance, and, and they have misunderstandings about what Christians are about, then you can say, here's what we really care about. Here's what unites us. Here's what all Christians agree on. Some of that stuff you've seen and heard, we don't even believe that. Here's what real Christians really believe. So those are some of the reasons why I think it's important for us to focus on these core doctrines, right? These fundamentals of the faith. Now, for this series, I'm going to use the Apostles' Creed as my outline for the doctrines that we're going to cover. I'm not going to preach the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to preach the Bible. But the Apostles' Creed is going to be the outline that I'm going to use for the doctrines that we are going to focus on. And there's several reasons for that, right? But let me give you just one this morning. I could say we're going to focus on the fundamentals of the faith, and then I could come up with my own outline of what doctrines I think are most important. But then that would be at least partly my opinion, which, you know, that's worth whatever it's worth, right? Probably not a whole lot. The Apostles' Creed, on the other hand, is one of the earliest and oldest and most often and frequently used confessions of faith in the entire history of the Christian church. And I like to think of it like this. It's like a stone that has been tumbling around in a stream for 2,000 years. It's had the rough edges smoothed out, right? It has become a beautiful, smooth, useful stone as, again, Christians have confessed it, they've used it, they've taught through it, they've thought about it, they've meditated on it, they've examined it in the light of the scriptures. It is the closest thing we have to a universal Christian confession of faith because it focuses on the doctrines where we don't disagree. The doctrines that all Christians affirm and unite around. So that's why I'm going to use this as sort of our outline. But this morning, we're going to start, before we focus on those individual doctrines, we're going to start this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, focusing on the unity uh, that Paul is calling us to in chapter 4. We're going to talk about what it looks like to live a faithful Christian life, and what doctrines unite us, and then how we grow in light of those things. So we're going to start in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, with what Paul says about how we are to walk as Christians. All right, so he, again, in, in chapters 1 through 3, Paul says, here's how God saved you. God set his love on you. God chose you. God sent Christ to save you. When you believed, he sent the Holy Spirit to come and dwell inside of you. And all that happened by God's grace and mercy and love as he brought you from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's building you together, Jews and Gentiles who believe in Christ. He's building you together into one body, into one temple where the Spirit of God dwells. And then he gets to chapter 4 and he says, Therefore... Because of all that, because of what Christ has done for you, because of how God has loved you and saved you, here's how you need to live. When he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What he's saying is your, your walk is your life. That's how you live. And you need to walk worthy in a way that's fitting with the calling that you have been called. That calling is your call to salvation, the call to faith in Christ, the summons to belong to Jesus. So he says, you've been called, you've been saved, now you need to live, you need to walk in a way that fits with that calling, that fits with that salvation. So what does that look like? How should we live as people who have been saved by Christ? Well, the first thing Paul mentions in verse 2 is that we should walk with humility and with gentleness. And that ought not to surprise us, right? Because Christ displayed the greatest humility that anyone has ever showed when though he was the eternal Son of God, eternally existing in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, He came down and took on flesh and was born as a man, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the Father, even to the point of death and death on a cross, Paul says in Philippians 2. He he humbled himself. He served. He, He said, I didn't come so that people would serve me. I came to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. He healed people who were sick. He cared for people who were poor. He humbled himself and he was gentle. In fact, these two words here, where it says we are to to walk with all humility and gentleness, they're basically the same words that Jesus uses in Matthew 11. When he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and lowly or humble of heart. This is what Jesus is like, in other words. Jesus is humble. Jesus is gentle. And so if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to walk in humility. You need to walk in gentleness, Paul says. He goes on to say that we should have patience. And we should bear with one another in love. Paul knows, if anybody knows, Paul knows that living in fellowship with other Christians is not easy all the time. Because Christians still sin. And we're all still fallen creatures. And so we rub each other the wrong way. We sin against each other. We make mistakes. We miscommunicate. We offend. And we have to be patient with each other. We have to bear with one another. We have to forgive each other. We we can't... Just write people off the first time they offend us. We can't be impatient with fellow Christians, expecting them to be perfect. We're not perfect. We can't expect them to be perfect. Jesus was patient, continues to be patient with us. God bears with us, right? And so we should bear with others and bear with one another in love. Then he says in verse 3 that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we have been given a gift of unity, of peace. And we are to be eager to maintain that. The Spirit works among us, not only individually as He dwells in each one of us, but also corporately as a body. He unites us, and we have this unity in the Spirit that Paul says we are to be eager 
to maintain. We're not allowed to be indifferent to Christian unity. We can't just say, well, if we get along, that's great. If we don't, well, so what? No, we, we have to lean in to a posture of unity. We need to be eager for that unity to be preserved. We need to be eager to be at peace with one another. Now, I think I've said this probably multiple times before, but I am extremely grateful for how unified this church is. Extremely grateful. Uh, And it is a gift of grace. It's something God has given to us, but we have to be eager to preserve it. We can't presume that we can just do whatever we want or just kind of go along and not really worry about it and that unity is going to continue to be preserved. We, we have to be eager to preserve it. We have to want to preserve it. We have to work to preserve it and make sure we don't do anything to disrupt it. Now, how do you disrupt the unity and peace of the body of Christ? Well, there are some really obvious ways, right? I mean, you can be contentious and you can be divisive and you can be angry and you can deliberately offend people and try to run people off and all those kinds of things. And there are people who do that at times. But there are also more subtle ways that we can disrupt the unity of the church. And there's one in particular that um, seems to be sort of a, a creature of our time. This, this is something that has become, I think, a more common issue uh, in the last few years that we have to deal with, that we have to be aware of. That we need to recognize, again, what things unite Christians and what things Christians can disagree on. Right? There are certain things that we all have to agree on. If we're believers, we've all got to affirm these things. But there are lots of things where there's room for Christians to disagree. We're not all going to vote the same way. We're not all going to think the same way about the pandemic, about vaccines, about any number of political and cultural issues. We're just not all going to agree on those things. And that's fine. What we have to be aware of is talking about any of those things as though all Christians do have to agree. Because then what you do is you send a signal to other brothers and sisters in Christ that says, I don't think you're really a Christian if you don't agree with me on this hot button issue. That there's not like chapter and verse in the Bible that says you have to believe this or you have to hold this position. If in your your speaking, if in your posting on social media or whatever, if you communicate all Christians, everybody who reads the Bible, everybody who's following God is going to hold this opinion, is going to vote this way, is going to do this thing. You may not ever realize you're doing it, but you are disrupting your unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ who now feel like you don't think they belong because they don't agree with you on this non-essential, not clearly biblical or biblically mandated issue. So that's something that we have to be careful about because that's something we can do without even really realizing we've done it. You can, probably some of you have had this experience, either you've been on either side of, of a relationship that has been tarnished because of something somebody said or something somebody posted online or whatever. You thought, oh, well, I didn't realize they thought that way about me, but I guess they do. 
based on what they just said. We have to be careful about those kinds of things, right? So that we focus, again, on those things that unite. We can hold those opinions. We can even have, uh, you know, uh, loving, understanding debates and disagreements. I'm not saying you can't talk about those things. We can, and we should. That's healthy. But when we talk about them as though anybody who disagrees with us doesn't read the Bible or doesn't really love Jesus or is, you know, ignorant or something, then that's where we can unintentionally disrupt the unity that we are supposed to be eager to maintain. Now, what does this unity consist of? What does it look like? What is it that unites us? That's Paul's focus in verses 4 and uh, four through 6, where he says there is one body and one spirit and so on. So let's start with the fact that he says this, this just is. This unity exists. This is not something that we create or manufacture. This is not something that we have to we have to come up with on our own. This is a reality that already exists and we are united because we share in it. Right? The reality of one God, one Lord, one spirit, one body, that that just is. We didn't come up with that. Paul didn't come up with that. It already exists, right? And we, by believing in this one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? And being a part of this one body, we are united because we are all sharing in this unified reality. So what, what is this unity? What, where does it consist of? Well, he, the first thing he says is that there's one body. Now, this is his emphasis in the book of Ephesians When he says there's one body, he means everybody who believes, Jew and Gentile, that's his focus. Everybody who believes has been united as one. There's one body of Christ. There's one church. And he talks about this all over the letter, right? Um, Later in uh, verse 12, he's going to talk about the building up of the body of Christ. That's us. That's the church, the body of believers, Right? We're, we're members of Christ's body. Uh, earlier in chapter 3, verse 6, he says this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. Right? We are one. This is what we mean when we talk about the universal church. Right? That there's one church. There's lots of local churches, but there's one body of Christ. And that's made up of all believers in all times, in all places. Paul says all Christians are united in the one body of Christ. So there's one body and there's one spirit. That's of course talking about the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Paul says we're sealed with the Spirit. He's the guarantee of the fullness of our inheritance. Every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Right? He unites us. He brings us together. There's one Spirit. He says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. What's the one hope that all Christians share? We're hoping for, we're longing for, we're looking for with confident expectation the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and being ushered into Christ's presence to live with Him forever, what the Bible calls eternal life. That's our one hope. All Christians are looking forward to that day when Christ returns and we get to live in His presence. There's one hope. He also says there's one Lord. That's the one Lord Jesus Christ. The one who died for us. The one who rose for us. The one who's seated at God's right hand. The one who's coming back for us. All Christians 
are indwelt by one Spirit, confess one Lord, trust one Lord, are saved by that one Lord. And then he says, there's one faith. Now here he's not talking about the faith that you and I have. Like he's not talking about the act of believing, although that also unites Christians. Here he's talking about one faith, meaning the faith that we believe, like the doctrines that we believe, the, the, not the act of faith, but the objects of our faith, the things that we all confess, the things that we all believe. For example, this is the same thing that Jude was talking about in Jude 3 when he said, I, was, I had to write to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is the faith? It's the gospel. It's the doctrines that all Christians have received and believe, and we hold to them, we contend for them, and we pass them on to the next generation. It's the same thing he's talking about in verse 13, when he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Again, that's what we believe. The doctrines that we hold dear. The the truths that unite all Christians in all places at all times. So there's one spirit, there's one hope, there's one Lord, there's one faith. He also says there's one baptism. Now, Baptists, of all people, know that there's a fair amount of disagreement about baptism amongst Christians. But what Paul is emphasizing here is that baptism unites all Christians. And we need to Think about this, right? Because though Baptists disagree with almost everybody else about who should be baptized and how they should be baptized and when they should be baptized, all Christians baptize. There's not a denomination of Christians that doesn't practice baptism. All Christians baptize in water. And all Christians baptize right, to show Uh, That we belong to Christ. Now again, there are disagreements about the timing, who should be baptized, by immersion or not, etc. But think about the fact, right, that all Christians practice baptism. It unites us. Even as it, in some ways, divides us, more fundamentally, it unites us. Right, so it's one faith, one baptism, and then he says one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The main reason why all Christians are united is because there's only one God. There's one God, one Father, and he's over everything. He's the one who is sovereign. He's the one who's in control. He's the one that everything belongs to. One God One Father, one Lord, one Spirit, one salvation, one baptism, one hope. This is what unites all Christians in all places at all times. And I think you'll see if you compare those verses to the Apostles' Creed, they line up pretty well. Either the Apostles' Creed is our way, one way, that people have said, here's how we can confess, here's how we can say what it is that unites us. It has the same structure that Ephesians 4, 4 through 6 has. Emphasis on the fact that we believe in one God, that we believe in one Lord, that we believe in one Spirit. Focuses on our salvation, focuses on what Christ has done for us. It's a, it's a way of, of saying what Ephesians 4 is saying collectively. Right, so that's where our real unity 
consists. That, that's what really unites us. We might be together on a lot of other things that aren't as important. We might be united on all kinds of things. But these are the things that we have to be united about if we're Christians. And these are the things that it is most important that we are united about. Who our God is and what He's done for us and how we've come to belong to Him. That is the essence of our unity. Now, if we're already unified, do we need to grow? Is there any progress to be made? There is. Briefly, I just want to point out how Paul points us in this direction, uh, starting in verse 11. Uh, He says, And he gave, talking about Christ, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So he says, Jesus has given gifts to the church. And some of those gifts are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds or pastors, and teachers. And all of those offices that he mentions, apostles, prophets, etc., All of those have a teaching function. All of those are, they're not the only gifts that God has given to the church, but those particular set of gifts, they're all gifts that are meant for shepherding, for teaching, for communicating God's word to God's people. And what Paul is emphasizing in this passage and through those gifts is that there are things that we need to hear from God that help us to grow into the people and into the body that God wants us to be. So he gave us these gifts, and the purpose of those gifts is in verse 12, to equip the saints, to, to give them the tools, the knowledge, the understanding that they need, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up, the body of Christ. So we've already been brought together as one body, but the body needs to be built up. It needs to grow. Uh, he says in verse 13, here's the goal. Until, here's where we're aiming, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, we're supposed to grow, we're supposed to mature, we're supposed to become full-grown men, full-grown people, so to speak, a full-grown body of Christ with maturity, with full stature. And, And what does that look like? It looks like being unified in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. And that does not mean that at some point we're all going to have to agree on every possible doctrine in Scripture, on the interpretation of every passage in every book of the Bible. That's not going to happen this side of seeing Jesus face to face. But what we can arrive at and what we can grow toward and build toward is a unity on the essentials, a unity on those uh, doctrines that unite us, those doctrines Paul uh, reminded us of in verses 4 through 6, and applying those unifying doctrines in the way that we live and treat each other. 
Right, so that we more and more treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as those people who are not, you know, those who we disagree with on various issues, but on those that we agree on the core issues. We worship the same God, trust the same Savior. We're indwelt by the same Spirit. We're members of the same body. Even if we go to different churches or we're in different denominations, we're a part of the body of Christ. If we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, if we worship the one God of the Bible, if we're indwelt by the one Holy Spirit, if our hope is in the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead and seeing Jesus face to face and experiencing eternal life, Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we should treat them as such. Paul's emphasis here is he's trying to tell the Jews and the Gentiles who are used to hating each other, but now both believe in Jesus, hey, you are united, and you need to live like it. You need to act like it. And that means being gentle, humble, patient, and eager to preserve that unity. It's going to be really easy for you to want to go back into your separate Jew-Gentile camps. It's going to be really easy for you to take offense at one another. It's going to be really easy for you to divide from one another because you do still have some differences. But the things that unite you are more important than the things that divide you. And so you need to be humble, you need to be gentle, you need to be patient, you need to lean into this unity and remember your unity is not in agreeing about everything. Because you're going to disagree about a lot of things. Some of them things that matter to you a lot. But the things that matter the most are the things that you're already unified on by virtue of being Christians. All Christians believe in one God. All Christians believe in one Lord. All Christians believe in one Holy Spirit. All Christians share one hope. All Christians practice baptism. All Christians are united in these core essential truths. So the unity of the faith right, is both a reality that we already share and a goal that we are working toward. We're working toward living like people who really believe this is what unifies us so that we treat other Christians as those who belong to the same God who've been rescued by the same grace through the death and resurrection of the same Savior who are filled by the same Spirit who want to show the same fruit of the Spirit that's the kind of unity that Jesus prays for, that Paul calls us to and that we want to embody and be eager to maintain. Let's pray.